Hello and welcome to Counterculture. I'm Peter Whittle. Now here we are in week 10 of this lockdown. It's supposedly easing. But maybe you're one of those people who didn't even think that we should have a lockdown in the first place. Maybe you thought we should go the way of Sweden. But uh, if that is the case, and it's certainly true, it seems, that voices are increasingly marginalised. Voices that dissent on the current mainstream media line on the lockdown. This is certainly the case when it comes to social media. There's more and more of a sense, more and more instances of people being deplatformed or possibly even censored for having dissenting views about the situation. Now, we're going to be discussing this today, and I am very pleased that with us uh, we have three guests. First of all, Tom Slater, who is deputy editor of Spiked Online. Zuby, the rapper, the author, and host of a very successful podcast with a huge social media following. And Rafe Hadelman-Kuv, the New Culture Forum historian and commentator. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, to talk about this. Uh, we can't get away, obviously, from the subject. Um, Tom, I want to start with you, if I could. Um, mm. This week, we heard something from the Education Secretary, Matt Hancock, uh, saying that basically being able to hug somebody new, I think was the inference, was something that was going to be increasingly a pipe dream. Uh, what do you make of that? I thought it was actually but I think it speaks a little bit to the ridiculous situation that we find ourselves in. Um, you know, the fact that Matt Hancock has effectively become kind of like Secretary of State of Human Touch, he made this announcement on the basis of, you know, who are you going to be allowed to hug outside of your household? He previously told couples who lived apart there to make their choice and then stick to it in relation to either moving in together or not seeing each other at all. But I think all of this is just a consequence of this never-ending lockdown, it seems, that we've entered into. You know, as you were saying, we're 10 weeks into what was originally supposed to be uh, a three-week period to the end of protecting the NHS from being overwhelmed. That aim has been met, and yet we're seeing no real signs of easing. I think the Matt Hancock thing is just a perfect example of how, for whatever reason, lockdown is being so clung to by the by this government they're so terrified about easing up to it they've got so much invested in it that they're even going out and making ludicrous statements like you know it might be 18 months before you're even allowed to hug a friend or acquaintance so i think it was a, it was a strange example but it just gives you a little bit about the mad situation we find ourselves in zuby do, do, do you agree with that i mean it, it does appear now to be an extraordinary amount of confusion at least amongst people i know what exactly is the situation are we even still in lockdown or what is this, is this something you you sort of sense? Yeah, I think I think that what has happened is we've reached this sort of period of inertia. The longer that this lockdown goes on for, the more that people become emotionally invested in it, politically invested in it. Um, all of these things, the more that fear sets in. And you're also having a lot of people who are sort of quite comfortable with it, right? You have some people who have gone through terrible situations where they've lost where of course you know people have lost family members and lost friends but you've also got people who have lost jobs and are feeling pain in different ways but on the flip side you have a lot of people who are you know still earning their income and they're still employed and in fact they get to work from home and they don't need to commute etc so it's very easy for people who are in that situation to you know talk badly or talk down to people who want this thing to end for economic reasons, it's very easy to throw out the, oh, you don't care about people's lives or 
you want my grandma to die has almost become a meme at this mm-hmm. point, not just in the UK, but in lots of different countries. And, um, you know, like Tom was saying, we have to remember that the, the goalposts have been moved multiple times now. For people who have actually somewhat, I don't want to say benefited from this, but who haven't really been impacted financially and in terms of their jobs and their careers. And in fact, they're now able to spend more time at home, more time with their children, don't need to commute and all that. Then it's very easy to see people like that who are very pro lockdown. I'm not seeing anybody who has lost their job, become unemployed, taken a massive pay hit, who is pushing the idea that we should go on with this lockdown forever. I think, Rafe, isn't it the case that, you know, they say this lockdown has exposed inequalities. Actually, it sort of has in a way, isn't it? I mean, there are people who, as you would say, do really do not care. They're in very nice surroundings and they can work from home. But this is not the case for, what, millions? That's right. I mean, if anything, historians are going to look back upon this period as one of great hysteria caused by governmental panic um, fomented by the media as well. I mean, really, we have to ask ourselves, why was the lockdown put into place? It wasn't to, to lower the number of deaths or the number of cases. It was to flatten the curve. It was to spread the exact same number of cases evenly or, or to a degree that it wouldn't overwhelm the NHS. That was the sole reason for it. And as we've seen, the NHS has not been overwhelmed. Not only were the Nightingale hospitals not necessary, but even hospitals now have much more capacity than they could. Than they're, they're eerily quiet, as we've heard in Scotland and elsewhere. And yet this lockdown continues. The reason that it continues is because the government is scared of being seen to have made an error. And so we have an unnecessary lockdown that's continuing, is causing untold damage. You know, in hindsight, it's a wonderful thing. We're not saying that, you know, we, we, have, we, have a, you know, we had a crystal ball back then. But I certainly said twice on this show in April that this was a question of philosophy in terms of morals. It was a deontological versus a utilitarian concept. Basically, what is more important? Do you save lives now and risk untold damage in the future or do you actually quantify this and say what is life worth what is is it the quality of life or is it actually just extending life for the sake of extending life and I think we've, sh- we've shown now that with the number of deaths from people not attending uh, A&E down by over 57%, with the forecast of 50,000 people dying from cancer in the years to come, I mean, we are seeing a catastrophic result from this, not, not to mention scenes we haven't seen since the Great Depression of people queuing up for food banks in America mm-hmm. and, and in the UK. This has been disastrous for people at the lower end of the scale whose, whose livelihoods are now basically in shreds. And there are questions that need to be asked as to why none of these questions are being asked by the media and people have to turn to channels like this and to and to and to basically you know the the underground networks on on, on social media to get these questions explored to any d- depth at all Tom if I can ask you I, I don't really like this whole thing of constantly sort of going for a big villain mainstream media but the fact mm. remains doesn't it that particularly when it comes to the broadcast media, much more than newspapers, there seems to be a certain official line and you very rarely hear dissenting voices. I mean, do you recognise that situation? Oh, 100%. And I think we really saw this in the run-up to the lockdown actually being announced, where every day at those press conferences, it often 
felt like a lot of the journalists there were advocating for that policy. <laughs> they were just asking, yeah. when are we going to go the way of Italy? When is this going to happen? For whatever reason, they got very invested in it, I think, because the narrative by that point was that Britain was being reckless, that Boris was bungling it. Um, and as a result of that, I think discussion on the lockdown has been incredibly narrow. You know, you haven't really heard um, the broad range of views, even within the kind of epidemiological community. And I think that's been a real, real shame because, again, a lot of these issues have been missed. And also, I think the kind of myopia of the um, of the media focusing purely on the question of lockdown afterwards, these kind of weeks of just banging on about who was sunbathing in the park and the rights and wrongs of doing that to the point where they missed real problems with how the lockdown was implemented, you know, like the care homes crisis that we've been talking about in recent weeks in which, you know, in order to clear the decks in the NHS, all of these care home patients were being sent back to care homes without even the need for a negative COVID test, um, which many care home managers have traced back to to very serious outbreaks. So I think that, not only... The, isn't sorry, that extraordinary, sorry, isn't that extraordinary that should be the case, that they don't no, even have to test? I mean, this is extraordinary, isn't it? It's one of the biggest clear-cut scandals in this so far. And one of the things that hasn't really been owned up to is that it's been, it was part and parcel of how the lockdown was pursued. You know, at the beginning of this, there was this big discussion about saying, you know, surely it felt like the, the first thing to do would be to make sure that the elderly and the people with comorbidities would be best insulated. The way it's panned out is, if anything, they were put more at threat by how this lockdown was implemented. And the fact that it took the media so long, it felt like, to catch that and to make it the big story, I think, was also really... Mm. Zubi, what was your reaction to the lockdown in the first place? I mean, did you think it was the way to go? Or you know that before we got to a certain point, that's we were basically going what you might call the Swedish way. And yeah. there was this moment of panic. I mean, what, what were you in favour of it from the start or not? Yeah, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that I don't try to do the hindsight 2020 thing, right? We all know that it's easy to see, say now, things that should have happened in January or February, et cetera. My personal view is that the initial lockdown with the initial reasoning and the original logic to flatten the curve, to make sure the hospitals don't get overwhelmed and we're not getting thousands of people flooding in with this disease and people are dying, not because the disease is even killing them, but because they're, they just can't deal with all these patients at once. That made sense. Okay. So that made sense because if you're going to do a, a severe lockdown, if you're going to tell someone, it's like if you're going to tell someone they're going to go on a, you can only chicken and broccoli on this diet, okay? You need to be really strict. You can do that as long as you give them a short frame of time, right? If you say, okay, for this week, you can only eat chicken and broccoli, right? If they say, okay, for two weeks, you got to stay at home and only go out to get groceries, etc. People can deal with that. But people cannot deal individually nor collectively with an indefinite strict limitations for an indefinite period of time. So I think that's the problem. We've reached this stage now, many weeks later, where the initial goal was reached, okay? And that made sense, but now the, the goal posts keep shifting. The reason for the lockdown keeps changing. And as this is happening, people are becoming, people are losing jobs, people are losing money, people are becoming depressed, anxious, suicidal, people are becoming lonely. There are all of these other problems happening immediately let alone what is going to be happening six months, 12 months, many years down the line from all of this. And what I think is, I think there are a lot of problems going here. I think there are a lot of problems of omission. And I think that there are a lot of problems when it comes to incentives, when it comes to the way people behave and do what they do. I, I like to look at things in the terms of incentives. And I think if you look at 
politics or you look at the media, for example, the incentives are, they are essentially incentivized for this lockdown period, right? I think if politicians were not currently being paid, or if a lot of these people in the media who are super pro lockdown were not currently being paid, I would be curious to know what their position on this would be. Right. It's very, like, as we said easier, it's very easy if you're in certain situations. It's very easy for Piers Morgan to push for this lockdown to go for ha happen another year. I'm, I'm not saying this to target him, but I know he's been very vocal about it. Right. But it's easy. He's, he's, he's comfortable. He's, he's very rich. He's still being paid. It, you know, yeah, it's easy to say it should go on forever, you know, but talk to the business owner, talk to the gym owner, the restaurant owner, whoever who has lost their job and has now had no income coming in for a long period of time and they are getting stressed and they need to feed their children, etc. Because we have to remember, it almost seems like it's taboo, but the reality is that this, this disease, this virus is dangerous, particularly to people who are over the age of 65, 70. If you are young and healthy, the probability of this thing killing you is close to zero. It's like, it seems like nobody wants to talk about this. In some countries, the average age of people who are dying from coronavirus is higher than the average life expectancy. Like, like really think about that. This does not mean that we, we, we want, you want grandma to die. You want, of, co of course not. But the idea that you're going to go run forever with this one size fits all model and you're going to treat 15 year olds and 25 year olds and 35 year olds the exact same way as you're treating 85 year olds is asinine it doesn't it doesn't make any sense you can have a more of a staggered approach you can have different approaches here i think the thing is is that before i uh, ask you i think the thing is really is that uh the point you make there about the kind of the difference uh you know in fatalities and infection is very important but that point used to be made at the very beginning you know mm -hmm. I, this is what this is what worries me when there's a kind of intensification of the situation. That point used to be made at those briefings. This is actually a mild disease. I remember people saying that. I'm sure you do too. This is a mild, mild disease unless you are in these groups. They sort of dropped that. Now it's sort of almost we're all, basically. What, what, what I want to ask, Rafe, is that given what Zubia said, given what Tom has said, um, why therefore, how do you account for what is the most extraordinary level of support that when you look at the polls, people actually, I think it's something like a third, want this thing to go on indefinitely. I mean, do they expect it to be the case that this virus is simply going to be eradicated or what? Well, two things there. One, we've already heard there's little incentive for people to go back to work if they're being paid um, in the furlough. And certainly in America, uh, people are earning more now than they would on, un on, uh, on unemployment than they would when they were in employment. But what it really is, it's the culture of fear that was created by the government and the media to instill fear into people to stay at home. And this really is a failure of behavioural science because the British government never actually expected such a great take-up of the lockdown. They thought about 20% of people would not actually adhere to the lockdown. We don't remember that today, but that was the expectation. And really that's basically to assume that things would be going along on, a, on basically sort of a Swedish model originally in terms of people going about their business. And that's why we had a very laissez-faire sort of relaxed attitude to the whole thing. And back in a April, twice on this programme, I said 
that the government is creating a culture of fear. And my, my, my fellow panelists said, oh, no, no, you know, people who are normally on the right also bought into this idea that, mm -hmm. no, no, this is absolutely essential. But we knew at that time that the majority of people who were dying had one of four comorbidities. You know, it was diabetes, heart disease, uh, uh, asthma, or lung, lung respiratory problems, or, or Alzheimer's, dementia. Uh, the average age was in the was in the, the median age was in the 80s. 91% of people dying had those symptoms, uh, and also you know in, in the UK higher and in America higher proportions of people from a black minority ethnic background as well, um, with and with high levels of diabetes and so forth, accounting for our higher higher death rates in, in London than elsewhere. Um, and yet somehow that's all been forgotten in the, in the extension of this, when really, as has been said, the priority should have been not to close down schools perversely when the youngest are not the, those at risk, but to actually protect the, not the NHS, protect the care homes. And the British government, the, the, the Conservative government, is very good on sloganeering. You had take back control, very effective. You had let's get Brexit done, very effective. And unfortunately, on this case, the third slogan also worked very well. Stay home, save lives, protect the NHS. Mm. And that was a very effective slogan. It was too effective. And that's why we're in the state that we're in now. Do you think as well that, I mean, apart from this uh, fear that has basically been extremely successfully, you know, instilled, if you like, by the government, at the same time, there's been an underlying change, I wonder, uh, whether you think this, uh, Tom Luby, in British culture. I know that uh, we had Frank Ferradi on the programme recently, and mm. he's written a lot about the culture of fear. And he, you know, basically that we are to an extent now ruled by fear, that, that this is actually, in a way, this is the guiding principle of our society in a way that maybe once resilience was. You know, mm -hmm. do, you, do, you, do you think there's a point there? I think that's definitely contributed to it and it's, it's definitely contributed to as we say the kind of level of public support that we see for the lockdown now i think it's worth bearing in mind that whilst we do see very high public support for lockdown at the same time you are seeing more and more people start yeah. to break it i think it was perfectly summed up by you know an interview i think it was on south end beach uh, a couple of days ago where a gentleman who was out drinking with his family said that he thinks that we should be more lockdown at this point so I think there's a, there's a, there's an element of people trying to have their cake and eat it what they're telling pollsters in the privacy of their own home is slightly different but i think it has been a, it has uh, the government have very much tapped into that pre-existing culture of fear means through which um which has already kind of pre-existed my fear as well is that it exacerbates other negative trends that already exist in society you know there's been a big problem with um atomization in society you know as of um actually in february um just you know about a month before really the crisis hit uh, the ONS put out a study on social capital saying that people felt more and more isolated in their communities than ever before. People feel more atomized. Young people even are less outgoing than they used to. They tend to drink less. They tend to have less sex than they used to. There's all of these kind of social trends towards atomization, towards being more fearful, towards being more fearful about other people as well, which also pre-existed. And I'm worried that, you know, as the months of not just lockdown, but social distancing wear on, you could see a kind of exacerbation of a lot of those very negative trends as well. Mm. Do you, uh, Zuby, you're, you're actually based outside of London, aren't you? You're, you're, you're yeah. based in the south of England. Uh, there is a, different, a difference apparently as well in how people are, are experiencing this. You know, if you're in yes. London, or if, it, are people carrying on life pretty much the same where you are? Or? Yeah, I mean, where I am, I'm in Southampton. And if it weren't for, the, you can tell, of course, the streets are more quiet. Lots of the shops are closed, of course. We've got the social distancing guidelines happening in supermarkets and things like that. Beyond that, you wouldn't necessarily know that much was going on. Um, to their credit, for example, the, the police have not been heavy handed here. They haven't been. Uh, I haven't seen them 
I go, I go out. I've been out every single day this year, right? Mm -hmm. Even when the lockdown was real, fully enforced, I was being a bit of a rebel. I was still going out for going out to the park and stuff. And, you know, people, people have been out the whole time and people are socially distancing outside, which is actually healthier than being stuck inside. And, um, yeah, I mean, here the impact hasn't been been massive, not in terms of cases or deaths or in terms of the, the lockdown measures. People are generally abiding by things, but it doesn't feel like a, a total, complete lockdown like but, I know they have in some other places. Um, it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, but the thing is, with a lot of your followers, you've written books about fitness, obviously. Yes. Um, and, and I was going to say that, you know, this is one of those times where have you found the feedback is from people becoming depressed, not wanting to do this, or are they mm. actually sort of incentivized? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a combination. I think some people are real. I think that, you know, fear, we've been talking a lot about fear and I think fear can happen in two ways. And I think with a situation like this, you want people to be scared into their wits, not out of them. And I think you guys were talking about how the, the campaign was perhaps too effective. And I think that what's happened, what we're dealing with is, is an overcorrection. Okay. So the initial model models came out, the initial predictions came out and they wanted to scare people into their wits so that people would not be reckless. What's happened is the disease turned out not to be anywhere close to as bad as they were initially predicting. If you remember when this started, People were saying the death rate was between three and five percent. It's turned out the death rate is across the whole population, perhaps between 0.1 and 0.2 percent. And that's a big magnitude of difference. The way you treat those things is very different. If this thing was killing five percent of the population, including young children and healthy people, etc., then I would probably say that we need far more drastic measures than what we're currently doing. But the reality is that that's not the case. And Again, coming back to incentives, the problem is that we we live in this weird time. You you see this now in the, uh, I see it online in uh, media and stuff where people get criticized for what doing what they call a U-turn. Mm. And anyone who drives knows that sometimes you need to do a U-turn, mm. right? A U-turn is a useful maneuver. You're going down the wrong road. You need to turn around and go back because it's mm. not what you thought it was. Mm. And I think people, like I said, people are dug in now where no one wants to be criticized, especially politically, let alone on a personal level. People don't want to be criticized for going, oh, actually, you know what? We, we overreacted. So we can, we can change what we, we initially were going to do this, but we need to do this instead. And no one wants to do this because they want to save face. You have all the, the psychological sort of social aspects are, are happening now, even in terms of the stay home, save lives, right? People are repeating this like robots because they think that's what makes them a good person, right? Being a, if you're a good person, you want to stay at home and protect lives. And it's easy to maintain that position. If you want to talk about the disease not actually being as bad as it is, as, as people thought it would be, if you want to talk about demographic differences in terms of how severe it is, if you want to talk about the economic impact, if you want to talk about the need for jobs and for people to be working and to be doing these other things, then you are very quickly demonized and villainized. And I'm fortunate in that I don't really care about any of that stuff. I'm, I'm not very sensitive. <laughs> I'm not very sensitive to what people think about me in that regard, but most people are. I think so even are, if people are thinking it, they don't want to say it out loud. Yes, Rafe. 
But just just to come back to Zubi's point about about the modelling that we had and the reason for the change. I mean, we have to remember the very reason for the lockdown was because of the modelling from Imperial College and, and, and Neil Ferguson, and uh, it, it it really highlights what has become a fetishistic and rather perverse obsession with worst case scenarios. Mm. And this is something which, you know, we first noticed, well, I first noticed during the Brexit campaign when the media were obsessed by the worst case scenario of a no deal Brexit. No medication coming in, aeroplanes having to have, you know, airlifts of vital supplies into the UK, even though everybody knew that this was a hugely unlikely event that probably would never happen in a thousand years. Yet this became the front page analysis and this became almost a fait accompli. Everyone assumed, in, on, at least on the Remain side, there were a huge number of the, of the FBPE brigade who thought this was an inevitability and when the government spent so much time saying to people during Brexit that that was an extreme case scenario unlikely to happen somehow they fell prey to their own evidence in, in during the coronavirus campaign when they also believed this worst case scenario which patently didn't have any chance of coming true if you looked at Neil Ferguson's track record he always tended to exaggerate to an nth degree because in his view it was basically better to err on the side of caution despite the, the calamity result of that and I think historians will look back upon th this modelling from Imperial College as Britain's second dodgy dossier of the 21st century. If you remember, it was our dodgy sexed-up dossier that enabled, you know, caused America to go yeah. into Iraq with weapons of mass destruction. And here again, we've got a dodgy dossier causing American and Trump to, 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 to do their lockdown. So not not very, um, you know, not 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 very glamorising events for Britain. But um, that really was the, the the case for the lockdown. And all of the modelling in America and Britain has long proved Neil Ferguson's models to be out out of step. And yet the lockdown continues. It, it continues. Actually, uh, before we move on to uh, the other point of our discussion, uh, I was struck by the uh, statistics about London. Um, uh, you know, obviously you're in uh, Southampton, so we're in London here. Uh, Tom, did you see these about basically mm. London being virtually uh, the, the rate of infection so small now almost to be zero in terms of, um, mm -hmm. in terms of actual, you know, uh, the R uh, number, as it were. And, uh, and yet, you know, there is no sense whatsoever in London that this thing is going to be sort of eased in any significant form. But so mm -hmm. they say now the justification seems to be the second wave that is undoubtedly coming. But again, there's not real evidence for that. Is that right? Well, the thing that's been so striking about um, those figures that we've seen coming out of London, as you yeah. say, the fact that there's been you know, no new cases or you know, negligible amount of new cases for a number of days now is how little you know how little that really broke through in terms yes. of being headline news you know obviously places reported it but it just it wasn't the big statement that you would expect it to be especially because at least as far as i understood it you know the government's approach going forward aside from wanting to get test and trace in place and other things was to do this on a slightly more regional basis you know so that if if a certain place is cleared then therefore you would move more towards easing the lockdown. The fact that that hasn't really been discussed at all i think speaks to how nervous the government is about moving on this at all and if i might just come back to just some of the points about um the economy that have been made because and how people think you're really heartless when you bring this mm. stuff up i think there's this i forget who said it but someone said on twitter the other day people are carrying on like the economy is just something for rich people like yeah. golfing yeah. like it's something which has no impact on people's everyday lives and i think we need to be really clear about not only the economic impacts here you know the worst recession for 300 years 
um, unemployment benefit claims gone up 70% in April, um, but also how much this has international effects in terms of lockdown. You know, there was a report out by the International Labour Organization made the point that um, informal workers in low income countries, their relative poverty is like is potentially going to jump by 56 percentage points. And also even the effects of lockdowns in the West in terms of hitting those countries exports, it's going to have a really punishing impact. And the fact that, you know, you even raise that as a question and people think that you're just doing it on behalf of rich capitalists, I think has been absolutely ridiculous. But I think as you know, the, the economic effects of this start to become more visible here in the UK, hopefully that discussion will start to, to take up a little bit more. Yeah, I think I'm in the future, that, uh, people are going Sorry, sorry I, was, I, I was saying I think in the future, people are going to look back at the, the damage that was done to this. And they're going to question, they're going to look at this, the fact that this disease has a 0.1% kill rate. And they're going to think, what on earth? Why was so much devastation caused to people and to the economy for something with a 0.1% kill rate? And 0.1% is, of course, seasonal flus, um, inf uh, infection fatality rate. And we've known, basically, we've had e experts in Germany and elsewhere stating that it will be somewhere between 0.1 to 0.4, 0.3 for, you know, weeks now, well, since, since uh, early April. And uh, what I was surprised by when Matt Hancock yesterday came out with this uh, statistic that 17% of Londoners, based upon a sample survey, had already been infected with coronavirus. 17%. 17%, which in our population would mean about 1.53 million people mm. have been infected already with coronavirus. Given that there are only 6,000 deaths in London attributed to coronavirus, means that we, there is an inf uh, infection fatality rate of 0 0.37 far from the 0 0.9 that you know Neil Ferguson and others and yet none no one in the media even bothered to highlight this fact and it's, to me it's amazing that you've got a clear evidence here of how relatively benign it is unless you're in one of the risk groups and yet the media are skirting over this and that's one of the there is no opposition right now I mean everybody believes you have to get behind the government in a time of crisis but there mm -hmm. needs to be forums where you can have open debates and it's the inability to question every time you see the briefings the daily briefings I'm amazed at how placid <laughs> our, our media journalists are Yes, yeah. I, I should actually uh, mention for the benefit of people watching outside of the UK, of which there are many, and you often complain about this, Matt Hancock is our health secretary here, right? <laughs> so he's in the front line in terms of uh, government uh, pronouncements. Uh, what Rafe said there sort of brought us on to uh, something I think is very important, which is essentially there, there does appear now to be um, an attempt by certain social media platforms to, to an extent, or censor, I guess, certain mm. sort of views. Um, I know you've written, Tom, about this quite recently. I mean, there was a case this week, where we're recording this on a Friday, this week uh, where a particular interview with Unheard was taken down by YouTube, wasn't it? Could you mm. just tell us about that? So I thought that was a really striking case. Um, YouTube in general have been, I think, ahead of the pack in relation to kind of social media censorship around coronavirus. And I think the Unheard example shows you how far they're really going with this. So this this was an interview Unheard did with Professor Carol Sikora. He's a professor of medicine. He used to be an advisor to the World Health Organization. He was actually in favor of the lockdown at first. He just happens to be a bit more optimistic about the state of play at the moment and quite keen for the restrictions to be um, lifted, not least because of the effect it could have on cancer patients, which is his particular um, area of expertise. So nothing, this isn't David Icke here, you know, talking about 5G masks. This is, a, this is someone of certain um, who has, who's credentialed and also very much of the mainstream. That video was taken down. 
it was eventually reinstated but there's been other cases recently um there's another epidemiologist called knut vikovsky who um, had a video taken down a couple of weeks ago there was two medics in california um who were discussing in a kind of little press conference their own data arguing that california should lift its lockdown that was taken down and this all stems from the fact that youtube pretty much at the beginning of this crisis announced that it would take down anything that it deemed to be spreading misinformation about coronavirus but which included anything which went against the World Health Organization guidelines well, <laughs> and there their are. previous there statements. <laughs> and consi considering the fact that, you know, even up until February, the World Health Organization were repeating the line from China that there could be no human to human transmission. They are not, shall yeah. we say, completely, uh, com you know, like having completely the right information at the right time <laughs> in, no. in, at the best of times. So I think that has been really, really concerning. And I think what we've really been seeing um, is the kind of acceleration of a lot of big tech censorship, which previously existed, which this current crisis has just given them more impetus and more impetus for governments, but pressure on them, I think, um, for, for them to really clamp down on what can be discussed. I think, uh, 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 Zuby, you, obviously you had a quite a well-known uh, run-in with social media. You had taken off Twitter for a while, weren't you? About something else entirely, but which obviously you know, completely different, which almost feels like another age now. It was due to something to do with identity <laughs> politics and things. But, but basically you have, you've fallen foul of them. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, do, does this mean that we therefore sort of would tailor what we maybe should say or not say? I mean, you know, what, what should we actually do about this kind of encroaching censorship? Is something that's been discussed now for about three years. We had a, Sh a Smith mm -hmm. lecture on it here, actually. Um, that basically this was something that was happening and it was happening either surreptitiously or quite openly. Mm -hmm. Look, I think this is my, my general position on a lot of things that are happening right now in modern Western society boil down to sort of two things. Number one, people need to stop being cowards. Mm. I'm not talking about individuals, right? I think everybody on this call, in this conversation, is more courageous than average, right? And I think the masses of people need to speak up against various issues, not just this one thing, not just the sort of slow erosion of freedom of speech and freedom of thought and ability for people to, you know, act as if they are in a Western country rather than, a, you know, a Soviet communist dictatorship or somewhere with blasphemy laws or somewhere like that. When they see these encroachments happening people need to number one be made aware i think sometimes people are just simply not aware because people are busy but people need to on mass say look we're not gonna we're not gonna stand for this we're not gonna allow these platforms to just arbitrarily make up random rules that apply inequally to different people and just are subjective and everything like that i mean if people are going to support free speech then they need to support free speech like i can understand with this very particular situation where you have a pandemic you have a virus going around etc and you don't want people spreading misinformation i understand that however as so it's already been alluded to the world health organization has spread misinformation on scale entire governments the the chinese government has spread misinformation on scale the media in the uk in the usa etc i'm not saying they did this intentionally but if you go back and see what they were writing in february in march there's been a lot of misinformation out there a couple months ago they were saying don't wear masks masks don't work and wearing them takes them away i mean what that doesn't even make sense you're saying don't wear masks because they don't work 
and because medical staff need them. Why would medical staff wear masks if masks do not work? Like it doesn't even logically make sense, but they keep sort of changing what they're saying. And look, free speech is messy. Allowing people to speak is messy. Letting people put out whatever they want is is going to be messy. But as long as they're not being criminal or or threatening or you know there there are I understand. I'm I'm close to a free speech absolutist. I can understand sort of the usual caveats with that. But when it comes to someone simply having a different opinion on this situation, or even I've seen medical professionals and scientists who have different opinions who are being interviewed, and those interviews are being taken down, that is very concerning, right? That, that should really be, it shouldn't just be concerning to us, that should really concern everybody. And for the people who are a little bit more far gone and are more sort of tinfoil hat types, etc., that will make them think even more. Right? Like, if the interviews are being taken down, yes. that makes them go, ah, that, that must be, that must be the truth, right? This forbidden knowledge that they keep taking down, that must be the truth. And the end, then the truth is, if, if the information is incorrect, then someone can put out a response and say, explain it, right? That's much more effective than just taking down what is deemed to not be acceptable or towing the narrative. I, I think we really... I just feel like society as a whole needs to be very careful about stuff like that. I don't think people really think about how much, how dangerous it is. Um, if, on this point, uh, I, it, it is extraordinary. If you have these extraordinarily powerful companies now, like YouTube and Google and Twitter, um, almost semi-political, you know, institutions. I know they're not. They're, that is the whole problem, isn't it? That they can always fall back and say, well, this is against our company guidelines. This is against our values. But in fact, wouldn't it, isn't it the case that they're just too big now to be thought of in that way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and what we've seen, particularly during this coronavirus crisis, is how they've basically worked hand in hand with state governments. Yeah. And different governments have different policies, and mm. YouTube and Facebook seem very happy to apply different policies, even if those policies are at odds with each other, which throws their entire logic out of the window. And certainly, you know, the more that they censor online, is the, the more conspiracy theories. I mean, secrecy and, and censorship is the best way to foster conspiracy theories. You know, conspiracy theories are like viruses, you know, and bacteria. They thrive in dark corners. You need to give them the open <laughs> air of sunlight and freedom yeah. to have a robust debate. It's the public forum, whether it's university, no platform or whether it's you know online you need to have an open forum for for robust debate particularly when you have i mean when you have misinformation as zuby quite rightly said coming out from governments and lack of transparency it's the lack of transparency from the government uh, over these issues because they're too scared of being exposed for having been confused in the early days which is fomenting a lot of, a lot of this and it's it's you know it's it's offensive to, to to learned scientists to be grouped in with the david ikes of this world when these are people who's who's modeling uh, you know Look at Oxford University and others has been accepted by the government in the past, and yet now they're deemed to be beyond the pale. What do you think of this idea, Tom, that somehow there's some relationship here to the kind of culture of safe spaces that we've also become mm. used to? This, this kind of overprotective quality we have. This is not to diminish. One has to say this. I'm, I'm falling into the trap, you know. But obviously, death is. Tragic, and it is for the you know people who've lost people. But we're talking broadly here. We have to, by the very nature, we're talking culturally broadly, and there does appear to be a sort of connection, doesn't there, to a general drift towards not you know to risk averseness to overprotection. 
I think so. And I think what, one of the things that the word I keep going back to um, is one coined by uh, used a lot in the US, which is this concept of safetyism. So it's this kind of sense which is developed in our societies, particularly kind of percolated on campuses, which is that you should be able to go about your life without there being almost any adversity whatsoever. And that adversity could come in the form of, you know, people saying views you disagree with or on a much broader scale in relation to this pandemic, where there is going to be a point in which we're going to have to accept a certain level of risk. For young people, that level of risk is going to be significantly lower. But at the same time, if, if life is going to get back like to anywhere towards normal, and it has to for the sake, I think, of economic and, and social life as much as anything else, um, people are going to have to be able to make these trade-offs. I think the big, the big kind of contradiction here, though, is that people are acting as if something like lockdown forever is in any sense a safe option like it is a risk-free option. There are loads mm. of risks. And if anything, the consequences of it are far more knowable than some of the epidemiological questions, which is still very much the subject of fierce debate. So I think that culture of safetyism has informed the tendency to, you know, glean to lockdown and to be very cautious about moving onwards. But the, the kind of great paradox of it is the fact that lockdown is not a safe option either. And the fact that that hasn't really been said enough, I think is quite striking. Yeah, is that I something you'd no. agree with, Zuby? Yeah, I, th I think Tom nailed that. Look, I, uh, you know me, I don't really mince my words, man. I think society is just so soft right now, right? I really think people have just uh, collectively, individually and collectively, I just feel like, you know, we are too, this, this might sound crazy. Maybe I'll, I'll, do, what, I'll do what Peter did. And, and I, I will caveat this by saying three members of my immediate family work for the NHS. And I personally know four people who have died from this. So I am not speaking, everything I'm saying here, is not based on this idea of I, I just don't know what's going on and I'm talking from some ivory tower. I understand it. At the same time, it's like we are, we are too afraid of, how would I put it? it? It's almost like we're too afraid of death in a way, right? And we, we should have a fear of death. Every, I, I, every human life is extremely important, but why do we not reduce the speed limit on motorways to 20 miles per hour, hmm. right? Think about that. Why, why do we not do that? That would, that would totally, more people die on the road than die from a lot of other things. I don't know the exact numbers, but probably including this coronavirus um, pandemic. So, and we let that happen annually. Every single day, every single day, people are dying of lots of things. We don't keep a running death count that's being announced by the media of all the things that people die from in the UK, in the USA, et cetera, on a daily basis. We don't even know what those numbers are. So of course, when you say 10,000 people have died of X with no context, that sounds horrible. That sounds terrible. And it is horrible and terrible. But in the same time, 30,000 people have died of Y, but you just, you just didn't hear about that. So, and I, I feel like this real, and this really affects the way that people behave because they don't have a context if you're going to give someone a number you need to they need something to compare it to right how many people die in the uk of heart disease every year how many people die in traffic accidents how many people die of suicide how many people die of lots of other things if you know those numbers then it's a lot easier to look at these coronavirus numbers and put them in place and sort of treat them in a more reasonable fashion because you can't just nerf the entire world you can't just wrap everybody in a protective bubble and lower all the speed limits to 20 miles per hour and make sure no one does any dangerous work, you know, ban, ban uh, skateboarding, ban drinking, ban cigarettes, ban everything that could potentially har harm somebody. People understand that we can't do that. And I, I feel like 
that's sort of been lost in the mix here. People have been so myopically focused on this one thing. I mean, have you noticed? It seems like no one dies of anything other than coronavirus these days, apparently. Right? You know, you, just, yeah, you no, see exactly. what I mean? It's like, and it's and like, widen the conversation. Yes. And the irony, of course, is that many more thousands may die from other, di other diseases and ailments than die from coronavirus. And so, perversely, a society afraid of death may end up killing more people yeah. in the long term uh, as a result of that. And one of the reasons for that is that society today lives in the now and has no understanding or appreciation of history. As pandemics go, this is the mildest pandemic we've ever had, and yet it's had the most severe economic consequences. Mm. People like to draw comparisons with 1918. That's the wrong comparison. The comparison is with the pandemic of 1952. Mm. And there what we saw, for example, if you look at in, in the United States, the death rate was very similar, and yet there was no lockdown at all. There was just a concerted effort by the government to try to find a uh, vaccine for it. And it's this peculiar world we live in now, where, 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 where life... Where, where life for the very sake of life is deemed to be much more important than, than actually understanding what the value of life and the quality of life is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I said at the beginning, this goes back down to the fact that we're unwilling to have a proper moral discussion uh, of the sort that is posed by the old quandary, you know, of the trolley, the trolley car theory. You know, if you have a trolley car descending down the rails and you have a person who's going to be killed by that trolley, you have the ability to turn that trolley onto another direction, but it may, it may kill, rather than three people on the first track, it may kill one. Do you change that or not? And that's the ultimate decision we've had to face in this society, and nobody has actually been brave enough to, to expose that in public, apart from Toby Young. And as soon as Toby Young dared to try to posit this theory about are we causing more damage or not, he was essentially, you know, um, well, blacklisted from any future media broadcasts. Yes, it is. Uh, also, there was, of course, you mentioned 1952. But there was also the Asian flu, I think, of 1968. Uh, similar sort of numbers. But I think what we can agree on, really, is that the situation of the pandemic is not unprecedented, but the response ha is unprecedented. Mm -hmm. um, thank you very, very much. We'll have to leave it, leave it there. Um, uh, but I hope that maybe we can reconvene in six months. And who knows? Uh, we might be out of the lockdown by then. But, uh, but uh, <laughs> thank you very much, gentlemen, for coming. And um, that's it for uh, Counterculture this week. And we will see you next time. Please do subscribe, won't you? And thank you once again to my guests. Thank you. Thank you.